Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, the spotlight is on acclaimed poet and author, Scott Hightower. Scott has four books of poetry in the U.S. and two bilingual collections in Spain. As an accomplished editor, he curated the bilingual poetry anthology 2012 Women Rowing. His literary accolades include the Hayden Carruth Book Award and the Barnstone Translation Prize. Originally from Texas, he has traversed the globe, sojourning in India, Italy, and Spain. He now lives in Manhattan, where he teaches at New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. His seventh book, titled Imperative Despair, published by Rebel Satori Press in November 2023, is a poignant and unflinched exploration of grief after the passing of his partner of over 40 years. The collection has been hailed as a standout contribution to contemporary and LGBTQIA plus poetry. Scott Hightower, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So let's begin this poetic journey. Before we do anything else, I'd like to know, Scott, what is poetry? Well, a, a big question that I spend 14 weeks every semester kind of uh, trying to figure that one out and peel that onion. But uh, for me and for us today, I think that poetry is the uh, uh, most uh, important medium for me for studying the human condition and its vast array of interconnections. So artist, that's the medium I've chosen, and I think that's a, a, a method from which we can study the human condition. Yeah. Right. You know, actually, I hear an echo. Uh-oh. Are you connected to direct connect as well still? Maybe that could be it. That's what it is. That's what it is. All right. Did I get rid of it? All right. fantastic. All right. All right. So Better? Poets, yes. Fantastic. Perfect. So poetry is a human connection. Tell me more. Flesh that out for me just a little bit. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I, I think there's a lot of different um, things, uh, things that can be celebrated in poetry. I mean, for me, it's an expression. It comes down to compassion, mm-hmm. kindness, candor, and joy. Uh, so uh, the ability to empathize and see the world and understand the world and also express yourself into that dialogue. And I think that can be serious and sad business at times. It's honest business with a candor. I mean, telling, telling the truth is important, but the, you don't have to weaponize it. The way you say the truth can bring comfort or the way you say something can bring despair or urgency. So I think candor is, a, is an important element to the to the war chest, and I think that one should never turn one's eyes away from joy. So okay. I would say compassion, kindness, candor, and joy are four uh, important elements in that in that exploration. Mm-hmm. 
Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. You know, there are many people out there. Well, maybe not many, but there are people out there who believe that poetry is dying. What do you think? Is poetry dying? Oh. Is it important? Well, if if freedom is dying, then poetry is dying. I think wow. there's a real connection between the two, and I think freedom fighting and I think uh, uh, expressing poetry are closely aligned. And um, I think freedom is probably one of the great uh, topics of poetry. And uh, so I, I, I'll, I guess we can leave it to our audience to make that decision for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. 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 I, for me, it's not. I, as a boy in Texas, probably the first poems I think I heard were hymns or prayers in the church. And then it, then it's just kind of built and built and gone out from there. So I, I, I think now it's the, the payon of freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's usually one of the questions that I ask, which is, please share an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. So for you, it was in the church, poetic language. I, I, just, I suspect it was, though, uh, uh, kind of in that, in that genre. I used to do readings where I, I would read what I thought were my poems, and then in between, in between those poems, I would talk about my family and the way they talked and things they said to me. And like, mm-hmm. I, I would call my mother in Texas and ask if it was hot and she'd say, Oh honey, we're burning. We're living in a burning land. Or I, would call and say that I heard they had a terrible storm. How were they on the ranch? And she'd say, if you're looking for a shade, don't come to the ranch. There's not a leaf left on a tree. <laughs> so, so I would talk about my family in between my poems, what I thought were my poems. Yeah. And you know, after those readings, people would come up to me. And they never want to talk about my exercises that I thought were my poems. They always want to talk about those stories that I was telling in between the poems. So it took me years to really understand where my songs and stories of poetry rested were there. Where that's where the heart of it was. It wasn't in my academic exercises. It was in something else. So, um, yeah, so I, I guess my roots do go back to the way that people, you know, talked on that ranch. All right. I all right, thank you. Your new book, Imperative to Spare. Please share with us the inspiration behind writing the book. Please talk to us. Um, yeah, this is, uh, I know that you usually are very inspirational in what you like to do here. So this is a, a bit sadder, perhaps, than some other things. Um, mm-hmm. I lost a partner of 41 years, and then uh, in that process, I kept writing because um, just because someone that you love dies doesn't mean you kind of forget how to play the piano. Yes. So the talent was there and my, my practice of writing was there. And it really kept me going. And um, so the, the, this particular book is a, is a catalog of those emotions and those explorations. And uh, uh, Jose was a friend of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's son, Gabby. And mm-hmm. I came across a line uh, in, a, in a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez that said, eventually everything happens. I've seen with some patience the unforgettable become forgotten and the imperative to spare. Wow. And that's an English translation. But I took those last three words, imperative to spare, and made that the title of this collection. And... Um, yeah, so that's where it kind of comes from, how I came about. All right. Would you mind telling us about your partner? 
Um, he was a doctor. Uh, when we met, we were just young kids. And uh, mm-hmm. I, in 1980, I came to New York City, and I had dreams. He had dreams. He had dreams of being a, uh, a physician, whatever that meant. And I had dreams of being a poet, whatever that meant. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think we had kind of cross insights because I thought, well, you're going you're gonna to have a job that's kind of dirty and putting up a lot of unhappy people. And uh, and he told me a lot about what poetry would be about because he came from a family of poets. So we each kind of crossed into each other's uh, futures and became partners. And uh, it went on for 41 years. It was great. It was a wild ride. It was a, it was a great experience. Yeah. So. 41 years. But the loss is there. But so when, when yes. You, so and that that kind of loss. There's different kinds of losses that we all have to experience in, in life. Mm-hmm. But I guess I've been kind of working a lot on traumatic losses. Are mm-hmm. when we're pushed to accept cataclysmic change, so it's the kind of the shock that comes with the the kind of change that arouses us kind of feelings of the numinous. So it's not right. just about suffering so much as the aesthetic and transcendent emotions that come out of that sudden jolt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, it came within, it came in about a year actually. It came rather quickly because I was writing. Pretty much every every evening. So, um, and there there are other manuscripts that have been written since this book. In all fairness, so. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you were writing you, this particular you never, book, you never truly you never truly heal. You you you, you, you become healing. It's a process of healing that you're going. You live in it. It's really a process. It's never yes, finished, it is. You know. Yes, it is. Grief, grief is not something that you can put a a time stamp on in terms of when it ends. I know that from my own life. It's not it's not that easy. Not that easy at all. That's right. That's right. Um, they, they come. Yes, please talk to me. Well, I, I was saying, maybe I could, I'll read a, uh, there's a poem that's, that's kind of the most jolting of the poems in the book. Maybe I should get that out of the way so that it would kind of free us okay. up to take a little lighter spirit. All right. Would, would, that, would you like that? Would that kind of set yes, the, please. The please, share. please share. Thank this, you. This, Okay. This poem is called Last Privacy. It was it was published publicly. So, and there's a word in it. Some people not, might not know. It's the word kite. A kite's in a, a kind of a hunting term. It's kind of creating a large funnel with stones and walls where you drive the animals into where you want them to be before you execute them. And that's, that, that word appears in the first line of the poem, in the first and last line of this poem. Last privacy. <clears throat> Ancient kites found in deserts of the Middle East are constructions aimed at driving and trapping game animals. They consist of long, dry stone walls converging on a neck, which opens into a confined space used as the killing floor. The last night, unknowingly, I lovingly effervesced the long catalog of my admirations for you into your ear. Hammer, strike, anvil. The last morning, I studied you sitting quietly, studying the water in the toilet bowl. I brushed your hair, gave you a kiss, told you I love you. Minutes later, we walked outside our door the final time, rode the elevator down together, crossed the lobby and vestibule, out the front door, onto the wide sidewalk of our building, 
all the while, unaware of the drive, your last moments under a bluebird sky, your last moments standing at the end of the fatal kite. So that's kind of the heavy, that, that kind of puts that out of the way, I guess, for us and kind of okay. sets the, the, the experience up for us. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, again, you've written a number of collections. Does it hurt you to write poetry? Uh, no, 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 it doesn't hurt me. No, no, it's, it's, it feels great. Starting a poem is a little painful sometimes, knowing that you have to get mm-hmm. into it and, and pull it off. For me, it's revving up is a little bit daunting, but no, it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt me. No, mm-hmm. no, no, sir. And and I don't and I don't write to you know that was thing about this book too when I when I finished it. Um, I mean there there are all these mic drop endings as you see on that poem and others. I got yes. good at it. I mean, I got good at sharing kind of this horrible, horrible experience and 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 cutting it into what were public and private expressions and what were um, um, different ways of you know driving experience. And um, uh, I. I didn't want to. I didn't want to become really good at that. I said, "Well, you know, okay. I've done a whole book of that, and so I, I wanted to move on." That's why I said there are other manuscripts that have other things that have been written since then. Because mm-hmm. I felt like if I just turned that into what I was going to be writing about, then it would be a little disingenuous. Then it would just be like becoming the most saddest, horrible. You know, it wasn't trying to recon. It wasn't trying to introduce a horrible thing to other people who haven't had it. It was more to give comfort to people who find themselves in a similar experience and can say, oh, there I am. Yes, yes, that it happens to me. I'm in that space, too. I've got to find my mm-hmm. way out of this, too. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's more, it was, it's hopefully a more positive thing, though the, the content is pretty, pretty insufferable at times. Yeah. Right. But I think as you said about life, and maybe I'm paraphrasing and I'm taking it to a place that we hadn't talked about yet, that life is good, bad, ugly, as well as indifference or indifference. So every moment will not always be a happy one. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, there are often no. times and I wish that we had a, a Mary Poppins-like existence, but that's just not the case. That's right, and and as much as we like having choice and freedom and and uh, make decisions and things, sometimes it's just about accepting what comes yes. at you, and yes. and that's right. death is a hard one because I mean death is really a tough thing. It's a tough thing. Yes, it is. You, you, you can be mad at people, and you can be mad about politics, and you can be angry about a lot of things in the world. I'll tell you, you know, the only thing that I have found to really to really hate is death because when what they, death can do to a life. To your, to your own life is just sometimes so staggering, and you really can't, you have to accept it. You know, you can't negotiate with it, and you can't get around it. So the sooner you mm-hmm. kind of come to embrace and accept um, uh, the, tra- the trauma that's happened to you, then the, mm-hmm. the more you can kind of move on to understanding and, and, and drawing more static lessons out of that experience. Yes, but I agree. Life, you know, there are some things, some things you just have to accept them. You can't, you don't get to 
mm-hmm. we like to achieve, I think. We like to share about achievement. We like to teach each other. We like to encourage and nurture the world. And, and we love the world. We want the world to love us back. I, mean, I think that's kind of how we're wired. <clears throat> so when something in our, in our futurity happens that's so horrible, it, it, it kind of shocks us, you know? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So when you were selecting the poems for the book, how did you decide which ones to include? That's a very good question. It originally had three sections, and um, the editors and friends that looked at the book all thought it was like complete, but there was another four or five poems that they had seen, and everybody was kind of unanimous, like, those poems really need to be at the end of this book. And so the book has a fourth section called Renaissance, Rebirth, that is, was added on to, to close the book out. And um, I'll read you. You want to hear one of those yes. poems? Maybe? Yes, please. Yeah. Please. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll bookend that book. <laughs> right. Or there maybe a couple that will make some sense. This is called Meditation, Point of the Eyes. Stillness and the discomfort gap and the distributor, this distributor cap. Do you enjoy the way I clean a plate? Who will fill my absence? You are afraid of me, of my surety of principles and my frailties. Though you lead and I but serve. The work of attempting to look the abyss in the eye and not blink goes on. Oh, how we take one day at a time, one night at a time. Count the kittens, smell and enjoy the puppies. Urgencies, no shame, no secrecies. Baby, who else holds time is offering you the world. Resourceful people bring a lot to the table. Myrtle Beach, a bungalow in Puna, a penthouse terrace in Manhattan. Comfort, peace, and respite from pain. A blunt, you and your abrupt endings. You with your bag, me with my pillow. Me and mine. You are safe with me. We all have to learn to live with the detectable and the undetectable. The treatable and untreatable disorder. You any more than I can control the earth and the sun. The clock. Attached. Unattached. Detached. The treatable and untreatable order. Why does anyone die? Like abrupt exits, I am used to disapproving, even resentful eyes, not yet used to trusting your morsing eyes. The work goes on. Guide me. Teach me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. 
What are a few of the lines in that particular poem that you're hmm. really proud of? What are those lines? Uh, well, some of the simple, some of the simple ones are like, "Do you enjoy the way I clean a plate?" <laughs> that's actually a stolen line from someone else talking, having a meal with me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I think that's a beautiful poetic line, you know. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Any others that stand out <laughs> to you in this moment, in this moment? Uh, uh, yeah, probably the, I can't quit you any more than I can control the earth and the sun, the clock attached unattached, detached, the treatable and untreatable order. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I and I yeah. wanted to share too, you made a statement prior to sharing the piece that hopefully would make sense. But I was thinking to myself, it, it doesn't matter whether it makes sense to me or not in terms of the order of the poems. As long as it makes sense to you. Right. Well, mm-hmm. I think there is, the most the books I've written before were mm-hmm. were very more academic and more cle- much clearer, almost higher in language, Mandarin and Homeric, you know, and literary. I haven't yes. had to do all that all that stuff. And this book, it was very important to me that I mean, it's a high and a big, a lot of big, high, exalted ideas, but I really mm-hmm. wanted the language to be very elemental. Okay. I wanted the emotions to be elemental and the language to be elemental, and for the metaphors to be elemental. I mean, it's still mm-hmm. it, it's still decorated. But it's not decorous, and a lot of people write when they write uh, about, about death and about pain and loss and funeral area things. It can become very decorous poetry, and I didn't want that. I wanted this to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, a different, a different sound, a different uh, thing. So I kind of allowed a lot of things to jump in and jump out, and a lot of conversational language and some phrases that like there was a little bit of the broke back mountain in that poem. I can't quit you, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. there. So I, I certainly allowed this poetry to spring around in other places and have different valences coming and going. And I think what you just said, I don't know that, I mean, it, there's a kind of a linear clarity for me, the writer, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I'm putting that on the reader. If the okay. reader can kind of come in and out and make it work for them, that's, that's what I would hope for, you know. So what it sounds like you're saying – is accessibility is important for, with this work, that you want people to be there with you. Right, without controlling them, to invite them okay. in, to, to create a space that other people can, can walk in, that they don't, you know, mm-hmm. they're not excluded at the door. They don't, have to, they don't have to go through jump hoops to come into it. I want them to come into the room and make their mm-hmm. own discoveries. So I didn't want to turn anyone away. I, I, I welcome and want the reader and the listener there. But I don't want to have to. I don't have any interest in controlling them, or appropriating their attention, or, or appropriating their intentions. Mm-hmm. They're free, you know. They're free, and I want that freedom in the poem. And you know, when you're a poet, you I say being a poet is like being a little bit like being an elevator guy. You you get to decide which floor you want the people to get off on. And do you want them thinking about furniture? Do you want them thinking about street? Or you want, what do you want them thinking about? Like so, when you in that poem, you're kind of bringing the elevator to stop and and turning the reader loose. So what do you what do you want them to to have discovered or what you know what's ahead for them? You've yeah. mentioned the word freedom at least. Four or five times. That I must be a very important word to you. 
Talk about freedom in poetry <laughs> or anywhere. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the earlier in some of the earlier books, I wrote uh, a lot about some people involved in the Spanish Civil War, which is a history of mm-hmm. family and part of my uh, my private life is involved with people that were hurt uh, badly by the Spanish Civil War, and and I learned the price of freedom. And then under Franco, I understood how people can be on the, the right side and lose. And I think in America, we don't often, uh, you know, the American dream is about winning and the right people winning. I don't think that's exactly what happens. A lot of times, you know, victory goes to powerful people. It doesn't always go to people that are in the right. And so I think freedom is very specific to me. A lot, a lot of other younger people always talk about, you know, the absoluteness of being free and not being free. And I spend a lot of time trying with my students trying to explain that societies are where you, you, you work with like-minded people to get something done. So when you're with your family or your church or your business or your classroom, when you're working with people to get something done, you're in a society. And, you, and your life is set up by many societies. But when you move from society to society – oh, and, and this comes from W.H. Auden. This is received. Mm-hmm. who writes about this in the dyer's hand. He says the perfect society – is a jazz ensemble, four or five mm-hmm. people that bring their musical talent together to create something. So if you think you go from your ensemble, your jazz ensemble, to different jazz ensemble, and it's the space in between those societies. It's when you're free to smoke a cigarette or sit down and eat a sandwich or wander, let your mind wander or do what you want to do. Freedom is kind of what happens when you're in between societies, when you, when you can integrate yourself into the world, you know? So I think freedom is complicated. It's not an, when I talk about freedom, I don't want it to be this absolute Homeric big abstraction. Again, mm-hmm. I want to I want us to talk about freedom elementally because freedom is in all of us, and it's in all of our lives, and it's at stake in our national map right now. I mean, I'm very pro democracy, and so um, so it's, I think a combination of like what freedom meant to the French Revolution. What freedom meant to the American Revolution, what America, what freedom meant to the Spanish Civil War, what does freedom mean in 2023 America or 2023 world? You know, it's a big thing. It's a big thing, and we do need to be talking about it, and we need to have our hearts in it, and we need to be very clear about it. So, you know, yeah, it's all of my poetry. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I watched the documentary on Francisco Franco last yeah. night. Got you ready, Carly. <laughs> I didn't know that he was so short. You know, I had to read about that. But <laughs> a little man looking for a balcony. Was, I'm familiar. What a big kid. <laughs> there are a lot of little men looking for a balcony, my brother. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why you read <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any names on it. You can supply the names, and you know, you know all the people I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature, Scott. Once it's mm. out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? Well, I, I do think that a, a good definition for poetry that I got from Richard Howard, one of my teachers, he said, no, it's those words that way. 
and I think that is that is poetry. You know, you, a, a novel you can kind of when you even talk about a novel, you kind of you can talk about it. You can oh, start rewriting it when you explain what's going on in the novel. When you poem, we don't do that. Poems with quote the poem. It's, it's that word and that word and that word. Those poems that way, and and I do think that while we we're alive, we can orally you know project and do stuff with it. But once you're gone, it's it's on the written page. Uh, which which is another point of poetry that I am interested in. That I do believe that poetry is both uh, has an oral and a written tradition, and that yes. all poets are accountable to both those traditions. I, I'm not a big fan of choosing. Well, I'm this tradition. I'm that tradition. I think a good poet accepts responsibility that poetry has a vast, beautiful history, and so you work in that oral tradition, and then it has a vast written history, and you work in that tradition too. And that's what that's what I'm interested in how how poems sound, but they're well made, and so mm-hmm. they should be able to work on a page, but you should be able to lift them off the page, you know. And and there might be there might be um, exceptions to that, I, I thought, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm very believe that poetry is both a, has an oral and a written tradition that uh, I'm interested in. Very so nice. it's those words that what you, you create those words when you die, and you hope another generation will come along and. And breathe air into those poems, and you know when when we read a poem like by Shakespeare or some pick, pick mm-hmm. someone that you love in history, when you're reading that poem, you're making your tongue and your lungs and you're making your body react, you know, around that poem the same way that person when they when they were reading it alive had to do to express their tongue and their air through. So it's a very, there's a visceral recreation of poetry as well. I, I think that's kind of interesting, you know. Yes. But I mean, there's a sonner, and then and a musical, and I think that the best readers are the people who can hit the the musical movement of the poem with their mm-hmm. voice and with their their timing. That's that's when it's just really it comes alive and it's beautiful. It's not performance like like bright lights and more lights. Not spectacle. It's that mm-hmm. ability to really hit the finesseful elegance. And All another right. teacher, Marie Ponceau, who I learned the word elegance from. And she always told me, she said, now, Scotty, elegance is using the very least to get the very most out of it. So I think wow. I went kind of from put Marie Ponceau's uh, caveat that elegance is to use the very least to get the most out of it. And then Richard Howard said it's those words that way. And out of that is kind of how I came to my poetry, you know. So when I edit, <laughs> I, 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 do, I think of every word and I think of every line. And every stanza, and I think of how, how the metaphor goes and what I want, and does it achieve it? And when I finally get those words that way, and it, 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 it's finished, then it's finished. You, know? you sound like you are a very welcoming professor. <laughs> I can be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> because if you believe in the value of the written as well as the oral, mm-hmm. I mean, that's huge because a lot of, I, was, I can't say a lot, there are people who don't. You see what I'm saying? The oral yeah. tradition is not always as valued as the other. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I love it when I have poets from all over the world that study with me. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I can go off on my big tangent with uh, Greek stuff forward, you know, Western civilization crap. And these are students, that's not their culture. And they'll just kind of, they'll look at me and kind of laugh. And they'll say, well, that's not my history. And I go, like, that's absolutely true. You know, that's not, that has nothing to do with it. Like, Let's go to an African village and talk about poetry and storytelling from a different place. You know, it's like my students have really broadened my understanding of telling stories and singing songs 
Mm-hmm. And that's what it, that's elementally. You're the guy who asked me what is poetry. I think poetry is just the human telling of stories and the singing of songs. Sometimes our songs have stories in them and tell stories, and sometimes our stories have songs and song singers in them. It can be a little complicated, and mm-hmm. and that gets you into theater and all kinds of dance and other kinds of art. I, I happen to believe all the arts speak to each other. Yes. But, um, yeah. So. Please share another poem. <laughs> Please uh, share another maybe, poem. Maybe, maybe, maybe a positive. Maybe, let's go, let's go, let's no, go it doesn't need to be positive. It doesn't need to be positive. Just share. I want to hear. I want to hear your voice. Okay, I want to hear your voice. Okay, baby. I got. I got something for. You. I got something for you. Uh, this is. This is based on a. Uh, uh, after it was kind of inspired by reading, um, Kavafi's Ithaca. It's a very famous poem that people were out there and know it. So by Constantine Kavafi is a Greek poet, and this is called Discovery Waltz. Discovering that there is some loneliness and misery in your journey, your escapades, but along the way you're going to have to do with some placeholders in the place of some real things you would much prefer. Does not in any way mean that truth, beauty, and goodness have failed you. It just means you, a wily poetic traveler, a survivor, are chafing against time, permission, fashion, that you are attached to comforts that you have lost. Loneliness and misery are not meager chains. They too are but truths that can avail themselves to you. Faiths the promises of hope and love they elicit in the distance are not mirages. They are not the new. They too are original. They too are accesses to a bounty for which you have begun to pine. A new poem, a new blue couch, clean Clear new spring, a bounty waiting for you. A little happier? (laughs) (laughs) Scott, (laughs) what what is the purpose of that particular piece? I, I think that, that that calling us to discovery. You ask all the a poem. Poems are discoveries. We're, dis- we're we're learning what we think. Every poem is a discovery. It's, it's committing ourselves to something, and then we kind of travel in the writing of it, and in the writing of whatever it is we're trying to explore, we come to understand and know something, and that, and then we're left with the poem. We're left with the tribute of that of that uh, search. So I think this is calling us to keep ourselves open and and, and to keep putting one foot in front of the other and learning about ourselves and learning about the world and the, the courage to think there are beautiful things in the world. So you, we, we want, like I say, I think we want to say, I love the world mm-hmm. and we want, and we want the world to love us back. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that those times of grief are hard times. You know, there are times yes. when things are not going your way that, that boy, it's really hard. I mean, you, you, you don't even want, you don't want to be around people. 
you don't trust the world anymore. You don't trust anything. And you've kind of given up. And that can, that's a very poisonous black cave to push yourself into, uh, yes. a dark cave to go into. So that's a poisonous, dangerous cave. And I, I think we really each day, the poetry keeps me going, has kept me going, has kept me back on the voyage. Take the beautiful voyage. So- so who is the who is the speaker in this poem, and what kind of person is he or she? Well, this is a, probably a wise a wiser person than me. That's for sure. <laughs> talk to me. Talk to there. me. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the Michael Anthony Ingram show. <laughs> that's funny. Well, this is the seafarer. This is the this is the person who has traveled, that, that knows the world, that has been, yes. that knows there are bigger places, that understands. You know, so many of us, we all start in one place. Our minds, sure. we all start in a provincial beginning. And then we grow and add layers, and then we meet people that take us to other cities, and then we meet people that take us to other countries, and then we encounter other languages, and other languages take us to other poetics, and other poetics take us to other ways that cities are organized in mysterious places. That Some are in the middle of miserable deserts, that there's these fantastic cities, and then some cities are in these beautiful forests that mountains and everything around them, the vistas. You know, there, there are different kinds of cities with different languages and stories and adventures in each of those locales. And I think this person is worldly. This person knows the, some of the dimensions of the world. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's, and it's speaking perhaps to those who are on the journey. You know, that, you know, maybe you've got a little ways from home. Maybe you've gone a long way from home. But it's that to anticipate that you can buy beautiful perfumes, anticipate you'll see animals that you never never even knew existed. Go for those wonderful, joyous discoviries. It's the Argo. It's it's the, Ar- Ar- you know, it's the Argo, which ancient Greek boat going around the Middle East making discoveries when the world didn't really know itself yet. Mm-hmm. But I also heard a weariness. Yes, well, I think with well, experience you 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 know you pay for your experience by losing some innocence, don't you? Yes. Isn't that Blake? Yes. yes you know the songs. Yes, well, the songs of innocence, and how can we tell the tiger from the lamb? Um, um, and the little uh, he who made 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 you made me. The thing that made you made me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to take a brief break, but I'd like you to share one more poem before we go, before we do. Please share. Ooh, thank you. One more poem before we go. I did not even thought of that. Um, okay. I know, I know what I would, like, really, I would really like to do. Um, this is called View from a Ditch. It's kind of based on the story of the Good Samaritan. You know that one? Yes. The biblical story. Yeah. So this is a, a poem that evokes that. It's called View from the Ditch. It's nice to have dominion over serpents and scorpions, to live with another set of eyes, to trust. Nothing by any means shall hurt you. Life's possibilities and mysteries, to be petted and to pet. Jesus and Luke, who is my neighbor? 
and before that Leviticus, how shall the stranger be treated? The sojourner fallen among thieves, the man in pain. Empathetically, the Samaritan's view reaches toward the man in pain, the view from the bottom of the ditch where the dog shits. Why flaunt your good blessings? Why bother to cast dispersions on those whose wings are clipped, no fault of their own? Twice passed by on the other side, rock bottom, surmises being a kind of self-indulgence. The Samaritan goes to the fallen sojourner and bestows him mercy. What is mine is yours, if you have need of it. My safety is yours. If you have need of it. Now that break? Yes. We'll be right back. We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Scott Hightower. Scott, as I had an opportunity to to view the cover of the book, it was quite striking. Talk to us about the process for creating the cover. Oh, that's kind of a funny story. You you have very very good instincts, my friend. Um, Thank you, bud. <laughs> uh, well, and this is for all the young young authors out there too. Have an idea for your book cover, and don't don't mm. don't be married to it, force it on anybody, but have one because often book people will not agree, and they will kill off other ideas, and then they out of desperation just say, "Give the artist what they want," and then your cover is the one you end up with. So that is what happened in this case: is that there were some glamorous and sexy and some marketing proposed covers for this book of loss. You can imagine they go from really sentimental and saccharine to some really sexy stuff. And I didn't want either one of those. I thought those were all mm-hmm. a mistake. And uh, I wear that, that hand of Fatima, which is what it is, Hamza. I wear that around my neck with my cell phone. And it was laying by my bed, and I just leaned over and held the camera up, took a picture of it, and uh, that's the image that's on the cover of the book. So that thing, I wear that thing around my neck every day, and so I thought it'd be fun that people see me with that big thing clanking around my neck all the time, so they might as well just see it, the first thing, that kind of waving at them on the cover of the book. That's, that's, oh, the, that's the way that came to be. And Hamza is an interesting word. In Hindi, it means graceful like a swan's neck. So okay. it's the hand of Fatima. I came to it in Tibet, 
So it's and that that image is claimed by Tibetans, it's claimed by the Jewish population, it's claimed by the Arab population, Islamic population. It's like it's almost it is really ubiquitous. I mean, it is a universal emblem of you know of, of well wishing, of, of hope, hope and protection. So I think it's I like it. Yeah, thank you for asking though. <laughs> yes, I need to ask you this question: If you were a poet doing a different era. When, where would you want it to exist? Oh Lord, that'd be hard. I, because I, 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 I like this time so much. You know, <laughs> okay. I, I like, I like what having like the old world it? discovering the what new world. What do you world. like about you know, it? Tell me, what do you like? I want to know. <laughs> what do you well, like? Yeah. Well, you know, well, think about it. Like, if we were before, uh, the, America had been discovered with by the European world. Couldn't have Mexican food because you need cheese. You know, you need the cows and the goats, and you need the tomatoes. You need, right. you, know, you couldn't have pasta with tomato sauce. You couldn't have good cheesy Mexican food. And you're like, <laughs> I love that we come out of the world where the whole world is discovered and shared itself with each other, and we and and I love that we do know each other's can know each other's histories, and we can learn each other's songs, and we can learn each other's languages. It's such a joy to me to be able to learn another language. I just thrive on that. So I, I wouldn't want to live in the world where it hadn't discovered itself or didn't know about itself very much. I'm I'm really a happy I'm a really happy camper to be living in this big crazy world that we're living in. Yeah, I, I like it. There's a lot of so, diversity in this world. I'm a New Yorker. I thrive on diversity, brother. <laughs> you know, I like all kinds of food. I like all kinds of food. All kinds of people. So is writing a poem? Letting your guard down or building a wall, my friend? Uh, probably neither uh, okay. for me. All right. Talk uh, to me. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it's back to that invitation. It's, it's a little bit like building a sculpture and, and then walking around it and seeing how the air goes through it and the light goes through it and knowing that other people then can come and walk around it and look at it and test it and see what they see in it and enjoy it and admire it in the daytime and admiring it at night and then admiring in a rainy day and admiring it on a sunshiny day. I, yeah. I think of a poem as like being an outdoor sculpt, uh, outdoor sculpture that it's kind of that invitation to the dance. Um, uh, yeah. I don't think it's building a wall and I don't think it's that at all. And I certainly don't think poetry should be weaponized. When you start weaponizing poetry, then you get into manifestos, you get into mm-hmm. other, other kinds of writing, which we need and have, and that's those are legitimate things. But a poem is a, you know, it's a, it's a special thing. A poem is a, it's compact. It's, it has that, like I said, that ha, it has that terrible, it has that terror in it, but it has that joy in it. And it has both. Mm-hmm. Uh, another great teacher I had was J.D. McClatchy, and he taught me about he, he's cooking was his one of his great metaphors. And he would say, if you make a cake, you don't want it to be all cake, 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 because that just gets you dull and boring. So that, and that's why you have those layers of cream between those. You know, so you have cake and cream and cake and a fruit cream and cake and something else. He said, then you've got enticement and joy, and you've got something else going on, complexity, and it's beautiful and and still elemental. So I I, I think that 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 either. Poetry is like an outdoor sculpture in different weathers and different lights, or a poem 
is like a, a, a nice cake with a lot of variation in the in the, in the, in the <laughs> that's, that's what I want. That's well, what I want a point to be. I, I don't want to be a wall. That. No, not a wall. You, that's that's wrong. You've, <laughs> you've said you've listened to a couple of these shows, but I'm not sure whether you've ever heard the one that I always talk about. <laughs> Poetry is like a cake. <laughs> oh, no, I, I had I asked my what guests. You do it. Yes, what please you do it. share with me. What goes into the concoction we call a poem? What ingredients, as if you were baking a cake, what goes into it? <laughs> so for you, Scott, <laughs> what, what goes into, into this concoction <laughs> we call a poem that we want to bake, that we need to bake wow. so that we can feel full <laughs> and quench our, right. our taste buds or whatever? <laughs> well, I've kind of, I think I've probably hit on a lot of that already. Uh, I, yes. I do think that the trauma. I saw, I just saw Pina Bausch's dance, Rite of Spring, and that's kind of inspired. And it, it has it's similar to the Book of Poetry, in that, and it was done by a Pan African group of dancers. It was so fascinating, beautiful, wonderful, best thing I've ever seen, a best piece of dance I've ever seen in my life. And in this one piece, there's trauma, and there's sacrifice, and there's ecstasy, and and there, there terror and horror, but there's beauty and ecstasy, and they're all very interlaced and interrelated. And like I said at the very beginning, when you said what what was my definition of poetry, that mm-hmm. it's the human condition and it's a vast array of interconnectedness. And in mm-hmm. that dance, I saw that same thing. So I guess I do reach for interconnection, okay. and I reach for something human, something familiar. You know, a smell like you know, I had puppies and kitty cats, or, or I have a point about pecan pies. I mean, I I, I like uh, Kathy Bowman is a, a poet who I learned a lot about using vernacular. Uh, Tastes and smells and experiences, and not to, not to leave those out because if, mm-hmm. you, if you're if you're reaching really hard and making things up, then you're kind of throwing yourself away, and you're working too hard. Use you know, figure edit out the things that you know and love, the smells and the tastes and the shapes and the shadows and the silhouettes that you really understand and know and recognize and can share. And that's what I want to use. That's what I try to use to make my poetry with. Now that's grown in my friend mm-hmm. through the years. You're a literary man, and you know the more you read, and the more literature you consume, you, you get more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrejit is my favorite novelist. The Immoralist is my favorite novel ever written. So I read widely and, and mm-hmm. steal from everywhere I can. You know, and, uh, with that eye of elegance, you know, where, is there, where are they using simple things and, and moving me? And, and then I try to go back to my elemental self yes. and where can I move you? And so that's where, that's where, where my material for my poetry, it does come from my, my little paltry memories. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of a little insignificant guy, but we're all... Um, compendiums of, of, of um, times and memories and smells and things and 
And I think you, with uh, writers are best, like reading Baudelaire. I mean, you read all that mm-hmm. beautiful stuff of Baudelaire, all those, the, the, the deafness and the body, but all those shaping stones and all that, the opulence in those poems. It's just so scintillating and gorgeous and beautiful. And, and Baudelaire gave us that, you know. So mm-hmm. he had that to give us. And so I try to have whatever it is that I've got to, that I've got to give with, with mine. Now, I didn't ask if you hail from a literary background. Oh, no, baby. I was raised on a working ranch and worked, and I read cows and horses and and until uh, I was 17 years old. I worked on a okay. working ranch. Was worked, was worked like a dog. And then, mm-hmm. my, and I still have relatives in Central Texas, the Hill Country, and they raised buffalo. We raised bison. Okay. We, this is old Texas. We're not talking about new Texas. Okay. So I, I come from I come from a very a very uh, agrarian. I have a very agrarian background. Mm-hmm. Now, but then I, this, I certainly live in New York City. So. Okay, okay. With this particular book, Imperative to Spare, mm-hmm. who was in the driver's seat, you or your emotions? As you wrote your poems, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would say I am in the driver's seat, but I don't think it's, mm, yeah, and it is a pretty. I will even say it's a pretty willed book, and uh-huh. I, I'm I'm suspective of willed poetry, and I I, I don't like it. The tendons of restraint sometimes bug me when I feel, begin to see those and the artist is showing. And I would think that, and that was one of the risks I ran. There were several risks of writing a book like this. It's kind of like, you know, like here I'm going to aestheticize my pain for you. And you're going to be entertained by it. That could be a, that could be a disaster. And mm-hmm. but but at the same time, that's what art is. Art is an aestheticizing of the human experience. So the very thing that you could kind of criticize the book for is also the risk that I've run. Um, and because of that, I was aware that I was having to be very careful. There does have to be some joy in here, and there does have to be some, you know, death and a, and a loss to death can be a very dismal place. Yes. And I did not want to uh, be less candor. I want to tell the truth about the brutality of the experience. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I, you know, I want to honor. Um, a broader spectrum of life. Yeah. Okay, so again, this is the question, and you've answered it, but I just want to flesh it out some more. In terms of your target audience, are you hoping to reach a wide range of readers, or are you looking to target a particular group? That's a, that's, that's a question. That's a good question, too. Uh, because I'm kind of on that right now. I mean, when you put a book out, you, mm-hmm. you know, a publisher's job is to sell the book. An author's job is to find readers for the book. Okay. Which is the, that's kind of what I'm doing with with this book right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, that's a, I don't know. I'm, I'm finding that out, my friends. I don't. I, I'm, I'm finding out the answer to that. I don't have that answer really. It's I'm discovering mm-hmm. that. I'm, I'm right. looking for the readers. I, I want to find the readers for this book because I do think anyone who is anyone who has lost a husband or wife. I want to say. It's a lot, It's not a. It's not a new. It's not over kids. It's not a. It's not a boyish loss. This is a very mature loss. And uh, another man, Mark Doty, wrote a beautiful mm-hmm. book about 20 years ago, losing Wally, his husband, to AIDS, and okay. that was called. Uh, yeah, and 
and so uh, it's a very decorous and beautiful book. Um, um, but I, th- I, th- I wanted to contribute something for after COVID and after AIDS and things. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who have, have, have lost. And, and in the whole world, there are widows, widowers, children, people that have lost things. And it, I hope those people will find this book and hope they will read it and they will see something of their own experiences uh, at mm-hmm. least reflected so they don't, they don't have to suffer in isolation. I don't give well, them answers. A- I don't point the way, but, but I just would like to provide some kind of uh, compassion for them. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a relatively broad question. We live in a world where there's good, bad, and I said this earlier, ugly as well as indifference. So what do you, based on your knowledge of the world, your lived experience, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Okay. You're good. But I also, this is what I love to teach. I love to teach well, the role you. of the poet society. The role of the poet society, that's, boy, you just sneak out there with this little soft voice and your little, little laughter, but that is such a big question, bro. Yeah, it is Come a big on. question. That, that is a big question. But I ask everybody, I've asked it 468 times now. The role of the poet so, society is a know. huge question, and you know it's a huge question. Um, but when you, wait, and, wait, 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 when you said earlier, the word of weaponize. And I was thinking, how do you weaponize poetry? And I was like, wow, I need to look that up on Google. You how don't, do you weaponize you don't poetry? Answer that question. You don't weaponize it. That's what the answer to that is. But yeah, it, sometimes, but, sometimes poems will, will enter the, a, 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 world, a world where it needs to be. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but back to the role, of the, the role of the poet in society. Again, I will say once, when I was a young poet, I asked Richard Howard, a man I studied with early, very early on in my career, and uh, and said, Richard, like everything's already been said. And like, we, you know, we can all read books and write poems. It's like anybody go out and read a novel or read a book and then come here and read an essay and then write a poem about it. It's like, what are we doing? It's like everything's already been said. Everything about the human experience, and and, and we had a lot of discussions about how everyone that lives sees the world in a different way. Yes. And we think about how many people are on the planet, that's how many different visions there are on the human experience. That's how big, that's a lot, that's diversity. And then he would, we would talk about, well, not only everyone alive has a different lens, but everyone who has ever lived on the planet has a different lens on the human experience. Mm-hmm. And all the unborn children that we hope will come, they right. will see it different because they'll have AI. They'll have other kinds of challenges and other kinds of things they'll deal with. They'll have they'll have Gag City. I love pink, uh, and uh, hmm. that's a Nicki Minaj reference. Oh, okay. those people, no? Oh, so, yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> so everyone who is alive, who has lived and will live, have a different view on the human experience, and it's only one experience. So. That's a lot of visions. And then between that many lenses and looking at the human experience, and then you realize that all lenses also distort. Mm-hmm. And people change their minds. And young lenses age, and some perspectives are not right. So there's that much looking at the human experience. So I was asking Richard that question. I was like, hey, Richard, everything's already been said, and it's been looked at. And, you know, what are we really doing as poets? You know, and he really quietly looked at me and kind of smiled, and he said, mm-hmm. Scott, Nobody was listening the first time. Wow. And that gave me permission to become the poet I am. 
and and like mm. I say, to to rum and stomp and to express and to steal and to do whatever I have had to do as a poet to make my poems work, you know, um, it, uh, the role I think the role of a poet in society is you know is is to go ahead and try to go for truth, beauty, and goodness within the moment of their time, knowing fully well that everybody before every poet before them was trying to do their best too. I mean, if we're all just doing the best we can before we lay mm-hmm. our head down on the pillow, and that brings us wow. peace. Wow. And, if, if, and, and freedom, that we have, we have tried to, to really not appropriate or hurt. We haven't tried to put our foot on anybody's neck. Mm-hmm. We haven't tried to appropriate anybody's brain. We haven't appropriated anybody else's sensitivities. It's about learning to live with, with, with that grace that, you know, you're entitled. You are entitled to, to the life that you've got. And other people are entitled to their life too. And if yes. you all just really grasp that and not appropriate one another and not dominate one another. And I think that the role of the right now for the point in society is to remind people that there are many lenses and that mm-hmm. all lenses distort, including your own, and to have patience with one another. And if we could even go further to really love one another and to not be frightened. Wow. Uh, when I was a kid on the farm, I also learned about living with a well. We lived on well water. Yes. And my family taught me, like, you have supply, and you never give away your supply because that's what keeps you alive. You and the animals and what the things you need, you have to have supply. That's what the well brings up. But it brings up more, and you have overflow. The overflow you could give away to anyone who needs it and everyone who comes. Anyone who's thirsty is welcome to that. And so there's that balance of, yes, you're entitled to protect and have and control and know about your supply. But you're also able to freely give from your overflow. And I think that that's poetry is the overflow. Wow, you're good. You're good. <laughs> we have <laughs> Thank reached. you, bro. Thank you. We have reached. You are too. You're good too. Yeah. Well, we've reached you're my favorite part of the program. <laughs> you set me up. We've reached. Come on, Scott, work with me. We've reached <laughs> my favorite part of the program, which I view as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to share two, three, four of your works back to back with no interruption from me, my friend. Please share. Oh, oh, that's that's intense. Uh, two, three, or four. I mean, it could be two, or it could be four. Whatever you like, whatever you, whatever's on your okay. heart. Okay. 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 Yeah, this is uh, it's one, but it's a long one, and I, it's kind of it's called "What's Up Intact, Fine and Dandy." The epigraph is uh, oddly Kyle Gibran, Gibran. Uh, ever has it been that love knows not its own depth? until the hour of separation. Fortunately, some of us know what it is to have one's life crash like a plane, to be a glass vessel of grief entirely filled with fire, thrown into a new secular transactional world. Dollar pizza, a dollar fifty for pool, more than twenty will get you some attention. I started with a single man, Harold and Maud, the summer of 42. I feel a bit like a sage wandering along in the underworld, at times like a character in 
Cabaret, or Rent, or maybe even The Blue Angel. Do you know Gus Van Zandt's Malanoche? Damned autocorrect keeps wanting to make it male note. I serendipitously met and bonded a bit with a kid. I was widowed by a heart attack at 68. He was widowed by violence at 25. One night a week, he works near my place as a barback. He gives Poppy's lap dances for money a couple of nights a week. Some nights he comes to my place. I buzz him in and he crawls into my bed. We never touch one another. He busts a nut, beds down a kid, and tells me all about it. He messages me and comes by every few days. On the phone, we sign off with, I love you. It is a very odd furrow that lad and I are walking. People are just as wonderful as sunsets if you let them be. When I look at a sunset, I don't find myself saying, soften the orange a bit on the right-hand corner. I don't try to control a sunset. I watch with awe as it unfolds. That's a quote from Carl Rogers, by the way. Drag queens reveal a notion of femininity, like machisto cowboys reveal a notion of masculinity. Neither is about being immature or being of hate. Detach from what one can, care for what one must. One can grow something, organs, antlers, velvet, almost anywhere if one understands the rules of engagement and the principles of specific care. Whatever you want, I can make you happy. Just a kid I know, a young man, a lamb. I knew another lamb. Shall we take in some version of the Greek tragedy Orpheus and Eurydice? Puccini's La Boheme, Verdi's La Traviata, some version of Lady of the Camellias, Charles Ludlum's Camille, Moulin Rouge. Everyone so anxious, the young so full of misgivings and hope, the uncertainty of achievement, the old so full of past, trivial encounters of daily existence are in the end what most of life is. Was not my case. My days of building were full of extraordinary people, adventure and travel, amazing places rented by history, a chorus of lovely languages and shelves full of great books. About the woodlands I shall go to see the cherry hung with snow. That we care so much leads to our despair. The attachment of hope leads to despair, leads to constant repair, entitlement, victimhood. Aimless, abandoned, hurt, 
lost everything that means something to you? Emptier than the sound of your own echo? Learn to worry less about what lasts, about what things cost. Every moment is just a fragile bubble to the skies, resistant to worthless obedience, obedient only to the universe. Resilience, fuel, scarcity, cold, fire, interaction, eternity, majesty, sanctity, sanctuary. That poem has a big ending, I guess. Uh It does. Did. Yeah. You okay? Yes, I am. Just, just listening. Just listening. Mm-hmm. Just taking mm-hmm. it all in. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, as we reach the end of this poetic journey, mm-hmm. almost the end, rather, what do you think your work, and you've answered it before, this is just one final swoop, one final sweeping, whatever. What do you think your work conveys about the human condition? Or you could focus on this particular book, but the human condition. Yeah, yeah, you're going back to my definition. Um, well, I think that what I said, we are, we are passionate things, we're passionate creatures. And I would like for us to think of our expression of our life as an expression of compassion, kindness, candor, joy, those things I mentioned. That To think of ourselves and our poetry as being out of the community and back to the community. And um, our differences are interesting, but our likenesses are more important. Wow. What did you learn about yourself, my friend, from writing this book, Imperative Despair? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, oh, it's in the book. I, I, I think people can read the book and find find out what they find reading it, whatever they find. I, I guess that's a private. A pri- that's my privacy. So. Mm-hmm. I would like to offer that privacy to the readers. You know? All right, then. All right, then. Wow. Mm-hmm. Where can we purchase the book? Amazon.com. RebelSatoriPress.com is out at New Orleans. They also have it. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned some other creative projects, and my final question is, what's next for you creatively? Where do you go from here? Thank you. That's a, I, I've written an, an, a, two other about this, the grieving. It's just a, a trilogy for the grief. It was a big thing. Mm. And then a, a book, of, I go back to, I'm Hindu, so I went back to some of my Indian roots and wrote a book called uh, Sutra. And then I'm working on one right now called Black Box, 
which mm-hmm. is a little bit about giving back into the, the dating scene. Dating is hell, by the way. <laughs> All right. Giving back, it, it continues to be about inner-human relationships, though. I mean, it is the same thing, and and finding out the, 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 the autonomy versus the vast array of interconnections that uh, one can find with humanity. So wow. it's kind of the same thing, but in a, in a, a much more, 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 maybe a little, a little more fun. But still, still... Uh, Scott, you are an incredible man, an incredible human being. Um, As I listened to you, I did not hear sadness. This is my take. I did not hear what I heard was life is what it is and that it includes all of what it is. Back to that good, bad, ugly, as well as indifference. Your work to me is epic and wow. Well, thank you. That's epic is a big, a big idea. I, I, I don't aspire to being epic. I really aspire to being elemental. I, I okay. hope that what I'm sharing is the elementalness of the human condition and its vast mm-hmm. array. Should I read one more poem in closing? Would you yes, like please. I'd love it. I'd love it. Thank you. Okay. Okay. This is called, this is a new poem. It's called Autonomy. And its epigraph is from Matthew 6:21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Trauma, sacrifice, ecstasy. So many games. Voice one, you only live once. Voice two, well, maybe twice or three once, but maybe once several times. It is not desirable to play one off against another, though one may discover that one wants more than elemental friendship with a character, the personal the public, the private. Each of us is a unique compendium of need, desire, and memory. In my waxing and waning for validation, what if I decided and could clearly declare I wanted more share of someone else's compendium? Eager to be soothed, more from someone else's eviscerated cadaver full of sparkling stones. One person yanking up another over constant permission may not be about autonomy. It may well be about the gratifications of control, an anxious exercise of consent. I want someone to want me rustling in their black bush. Who wants all the unsolicited privileges that come along with a package of trust and time? There are moments the stakes suddenly feel high. Eventually, the tide turns, always turns. Time to adapt, affinity, circumstance, 
fourth quarter, there are moments the stakes suddenly feel high. Thank you. This was really fun, and I would like to thank you and everyone for listening. Well, I'd like to rephrase my final statement that your work is epically elemental. How does that sound? <laughs> thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for the book. Oh, thank you. It was an incredible time with you. The book is Imperative Despair. It's available now. Scott, I wish nothing but the best, man. Going to pieces, you continue I don't. your journey, you know, I know it's not easy. But as you continue your journey, I say nothing but the best to you. Thank you. All right. And to the listening audience, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.